Welcome to Capital Conversations, a podcast of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I'm Matthew Hawkins. On today's conversation, we'll jump into two civic issues facing local churches with greater and greater frequency. First, what does it look like for a local church to respond to the opioid crisis? I'll note that at the publishing of this episode, the U.S. Congress is considering and passing volumes and volumes of bills for the federal response to the opioid crisis. Our guest today gives us a glimpse into what that battle looks like at the local level. Second, how does a local church engage its neighbors in a multi-faith community while remaining true to our doctrinal commitments? To discuss all of this and more, I caught up with my friend, Pastor Joel Rainey, when we were both in Dallas for the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. Joel serves as pastor of Covenant Church in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. That's my home state, by the way, but you'll see I soon learn a lot about Shepherdstown in the course of this conversation. Prior to his current pastorate, Joel served as the director of mission for the Maryland-Delaware Baptist Convention. Pastor Joel Rainey, welcome to Capital Conversations. Great to be with you, Matt. Joel, so tell us a little bit about your church, and uh, I think it's particularly interested, we were talking off mic, about what Shepherdstown looks like. It's in the panhandle of West, the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. I grew up in Morgantown, which is kind of north central. Tell us a little bit about that culture, maybe what you anticipated, having moved uh, over from Maryland, I think, in your last gig, yeah. and uh, what, what surprised you. Uh, just kind of set, set the table for the environment in which you're doing ministry. Glad to. Covenant is a 32-year-old church sitting in the middle of the oldest town in West Virginia, uh, which is Shepherdstown. It has that distinction. Uh, Shepherdstown itself is only a couple of thousand people. Once you get beyond that to the larger two-county area in the Panhandle, which is uh, essentially Jefferson County to the east, Berkeley County to the west, uh, that expands to about 70,000, and then you're well over 200,000 by the time you get into the wider tri-state area. And when you come to our church, you're going to see license place from three different states right? because of where we're located geographically. Um, It's one of the points of curiosity for me because I've always understood rivers and bridges and things like that to be natural boundaries. Uh They just don't seem to be there. Right. Uh, Uh They seem to get ignored. And so, uh, but we, it it is much to me, at least like home, I'm a native South Carolinian and I grew up in the Greenville Spartanburg area up in the uh, northwest end of the state of South Carolina. And I I've told the people in our church, I used to get up every morning as a kid uh, and look at the south side of the same mountain range that I now get up as an adult and look at, except I'm looking at the north end of it. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it, it kind of starts um, in the Shepherdstown up in that area and right. ends uh-huh. kind of where I came from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so, a beautiful part of the country, if I may say, as it, a native it, of West Virginia. It's a very gorgeous place. It really is. And so we looked forward to going uh, I'm in my third year there. Uh-huh. Um, you and I have known each other for a few years. And so, right. you know, I worked yeah. for Maryland Delaware Baptist for a long time. Yeah. Right. Uh, Love my work there, but we had asked God for several years if, if he would see fit to put us back into a local church context. Right. I'm a Baptist at heart. We believe sure. that's where the, yeah. the, the ministry, really the rubber meets the road. And so yeah. uh, we were happy to go back and specifically to a place that reminded us so much of home and of people that yeah. were so much like us. It was, it was a really great thing to do. Good. So that's who we are. Church that at this point it was uh, it, it had been in a period of decline for about ten years, uh-huh. uh, and so after again I'm in my third year now, I've uh, got about 150 more people coming in now. A lot of folks who've gotten saved, and we're really Wonderful. rejoicing over yeah. that. Uh, about 600 or so between two services on Sunday, and yeah. and God willing, a bright future ahead of us. Good. So that's where I'm honored to serve. Yeah. Well, praise God. Uh, sounds like the Lord is blessing your ministry there. So, Joel, why? Uh, as a pastor, you've been there three years. 
seems like, particularly given maybe your, the history of your church, had been in decline. So you've got to deal with some, you know, kind of internal rudimentary church stuff, right? Uh, right to to get your church back on and engaged. Um, yet uh, you've led early um, in 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 leading your church to engage its community on uh, some social issues, um, namely the opioid crisis. Uh, yes. Talk to me about how you um, became familiar with this, um, what your local community is seeing in, in respect to the opioid crisis. Yeah. What is this thing we're dealing with? Yeah, what a great question. And I think if, I'm a, if I understand the earlier part of your question, yeah, is sure. that how, yeah. why are you doing that while you're also trying to transition to church? Exactly. Right? Right, right. Yeah. Are you nuts? Yeah. Um, and John Mark Clifton, by the way, would be your resident expert sure. on church revitalization right, broadly right, right, right. defined. Yeah, yeah. This is actually my first rodeo. For the record, I do understand Joel to be nuts. So we'll just, I am we'll set crazy. That, we'll yes, assume just that, a but. little touched. Yep. <laughs> I, I admit to that. Uh, and exhibit A of that is I did church planting for 12 years. So right, that, yeah. that, that's reason enough to believe that there's something wrong with me. But uh, yeah, moving into church revitalization, I know enough about culture change to know that, that revitalization at its root is a changing culture. Culture. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just an issue for me of, well, we've got to get this thing revitalized. We've got to get the, the, the attendance back up. We've got to get the offerings back up. And then we can actually engage the community. You really need to build that engagement in at the start so that it's in the DNA of the culture that you're trying to revitalize. Yeah. Uh, and also just the sheer numbers of addicted people in our area. This is a nationwide phenomenon, but right. West Virginia is number one in the right. nation among all 50 states, Gosh. Uh, not something to be proud of. And, and that's that's where we are. And so uh, I have the MS chief uh, in the local fire department who's uh-huh. a member of my church, a lot of first responders. Yeah. I'm honored to serve as the chaplain of the local first responders, the fire department there, uh-huh. uh, working with those guys. And very early on, uh, I saw the degree of this crisis in our area that yeah. we're, I mean, we. Basically, they would go all night until they ran out of Narcan, which for your listeners' uh, information is the drug to wake them back up after they've passed out from a a heroin overdose. Uh, And then, of course, once you run out of Narcan, there's nothing left. Everybody else dies. Gosh. Um, Funeral homes are telling me they're getting about three bodies a week on average per funeral home just from opioid addiction. Uh, And then I would later learn that in in Jefferson County, which is where our church is located, Uh If you live there, there's a one in 2,000 chance that you will die. Goodness Not gracious. be addicted, but right, die, die from yeah. an overdose. Uh, and in neighboring Berkeley County, it's one in 1,200. And so this is just unacceptable. And, and so right. o- over the last several months, as I've, I've in, tried to engage that, as a pastor who's not a, I'm not a recovery expert, I don't, and I, I don't admit to, I, I don't sure. claim to be one. Right. Uh, but knowing that we needed help in that regard, knowing that we needed some court, sort of coordinated effort that had to be better than what we were doing. Right. So we just prayed. Yeah. You know, God, would you send us the right people? And so in time, that right. that has begun to emerge. And my hope is uh, that we're going to see some measurable results from that at least five years out. This is a long-term problem. We know we're not going to solve it in a week. Right. But we do want to see it solved. And we, we want to we see... And, and we're people of the resurrection, as I told our folks. Right. We serve a Savior who called, who took a dead man and called him out of the grave. We, we need to look at our dying culture that's around us and yeah. call it back to life. Yeah. 
And we can give them a taste of the kingdom that is coming yeah. if we can solve some things in this current world, yeah. uh, working with others. Yeah. So as you uh, led your church in, to engage this issue, did they get the church engagement of that issue instinctively, or did you have to kind of do some uh, coaching or some uh, uh, preaching uh, to kind of explain why a church ought to engage such yeah. an issue? Uh, was it an easy lift? Was it more challenging? This one was easy. Yeah. They, could, um, they kind of saw the crisis already. Yeah, they're, right? they're, they got it. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd already, I mean, by the time we launched this thing full bore, I'd already buried sons, cousins, Gosh, yeah. husbands. And, and so they, they, there's an acuteness to this that once I said, okay, here's what we believe the plan is going to be. Yeah. Uh, here's how much it's going to cost. Yeah. Here's typically the way we're going to go about trying to get it started and execute. Uh-huh. They, most people are on board. Yeah. So, so let's talk uh, a practical approach. What kinds of things does your church do to address the opioid crisis? Practically, kind of maybe internally and then externally. What kind of things you you, you mentioned uh, budgetary stuff? So you're bringing money to the table to do this. It's not, not not purely a kind of a, a volunteer on the side kind of thing. It sounds like fairly intentional program. What kinds of things are you doing? Yeah. It's a great question. Uh, well, first, we're doing all the things you would think that a church would do. We have a Celebrate Recovery program on right. campus. Uh-huh. We're, we're, we're working with local AA and NA and Al-Anon and Naranon and right. all those kinds of individuals. Uh, the issue that is, I think, that I believe has kept us from being able to, to deal with this broadly and more effectively is just a lack of coordination. Right. Uh, we had a listening session. Uh, in fact, just this past November, we held it at the church. First responders, physicians, nurses, educators, people from around the community that you know have to deal with this from their own professional angles. Right. And we said, what do you what do you need? Because we know there's a lot of needs, but right. but what's the one thing that if we could make a really good dent in it, we could make a dent in this issue? Yeah. Um, and I was prepared for things like a bed ready facility because, for yeah, example, yeah. there's nothing like that in the yeah. Panhandle. What I heard in almost unanimous response was, we need someone to coordinate our work. Right. And I'll never forget, it was the county sheriff's deputy that was there, and he said, we're all dealing with this. I'm locking them up. He's treating them. She's trying to teach their kids. Uh-huh. He, and we've never, until today, been in a room and talked about how to work this together. Right. Uh, and so that now is the, the sort of the broad sort approach that we're taking. Yeah. You guys actually were very instrumental in that, ERLC, because we're not that far from D.C. Right. Uh, and you guys introduced us to Andrew Hanauer, who's part uh-huh. of the One America Movement. Right. Uh, it's a community organizing group. Right. Uh, yeah. I would have never thought that sure. community organizing would have been a way you would deal with this. Right. But a lot of this addiction, it exists and it's allowed to continue to exist because it feeds off of isolation. Right. It feeds off of shame. Uh-huh. My son's addicted. I don't want anybody to know that. And yeah. so we have to become the kind of church culture that says, yeah, we don't condone it, but right. we're going to put our arms around you and you are welcome here. Right. Uh, and we're going to love you through this and we don't want you to be ashamed. Right. We want you to ask for help right. uh, because we want to give it. And then the isolation. You've got to yeah. put people around the addict and the addict's family. Yeah. And if you don't do that, there's really no, nothing that medical professionals can do right. uh, to help that individual because the long-term solution is grounded in removing that person from the isolation and the shame that they're feeling. Yeah. 
Well, Joe, I appreciate you giving us kind of a, an on-the-ground glimpse at, a what, at the, what this national crisis looks like, particularly acute in West Virginia and in your uh, own community as we in, in D.C. witness the federal government trying to get their hands around uh, how to address this, uh, what, to what extent the federal government can contribute and can help, and what the limitations are. I know you've been in the, engaged in those conversations. Uh, it's a, a, hardly a week goes by where we, there's not some kind of conversation about this at the federal level. Uh, so I appreciate you giving us that insight. Um, uh, uh, let me say this yeah. too, with regard to the federal level. Sure. Yeah. Of course, DC is its own city. Yeah. Um, but we are getting a lot of help and grace, frankly, from the African American community in DC. Really? Who is helping us with this. Wow. Uh, I'm sure you probably know the history behind that, that this issue has been pretty much considered a criminal justice issue for a long, long uh-huh. time. Yeah. I don't know that it's intentional, sure. but it is interesting that there's a correlation between that and the fact that for such a long time, this was confined to minority communities. Right. And now that it's moving into the white communities, right. we're beginning to shift our focus and, well, maybe this should be a healthcare issue. Yeah, right. So in spite of the way we have even passively, aggressively perhaps treated our minority brothers and sisters, yeah. they've been most eager to come to the panhandle from D.C. Wow. Uh, Dr. Edwin Chapman is one uh-huh. of those guys who's just been, uh, he's going to be a champion for us. Right. Yeah. Uh, and we're greatly appreciative of them helping us not have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Uh, praise God for that that partnership. It underscores our need for greater diversity uh, within our churches, absolutely, um, and, uh, and 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 across churches, um, and and even across uh, um, associations and things, right? Because there are certain communities that have experience uh, in addressing some things, and then others that don't. And uh, we at the ERLC for many years have observed that often all it takes for one church to engage a particular issue is to show them another church who's already doing it, right? Uh, right. So I hope this is uh, part of my intent for this conversation is to do exactly that. So um, Folks will be more than welcome to contact us. Right. Uh, yeah. As long as they know in advance, we're just getting started. Just getting started. Hey, uh, we, we can learn together on this um, because nowadays in kind of the American evangelical uh, subculture, if you want to start a pregnancy care ministry or a mission house or a soup kitchen or like a Celebrate Recovery, an addiction recovery program, like all those ministries at this point uh, with variation, church has been doing it long enough that we you can kind of more or less go down the lifeway and pull the ministry off the bo- you know oh, box yeah. off the shelf, right? Opioids is a different issue. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, it, right now. Um, it's even different than a lot of other recovery issues right. because of the way in which this particular drug affects the brain. Uh-huh. Talk it to is, us a little bit about that. It's yeah. uh, Well, again, I'm not a medical expert, but but I am, I'm trying to educate myself as much as I can. Uh-huh. Uh, and I would recommend to your listeners the book Dreamland. Okay. Uh, it's written almost in novelistic fashion, but everything's historically accurate. Uh-huh. San Quinones has really put together a great picture of how various forces unintentionally, nobody did this on purpose, but created the perfect storm. Right. From pain management, the way this has been, the way opioids have been even misunderstood among the medical community in years right. past, yeah. uh, as well as the way that the shame and the isolation, all this kind of coalesces yeah. and creates this. And then just what this drug does from its first use to the yeah. prefrontal cortex of the brain. 
Yeah. Uh, this really is a disease. And yeah. so now we're followers of Jesus. I'm not going to say there's not a moral element to this. There is. Sure. And, and yeah. one of the things we're doing is bringing recovery experts and individuals off the streets yeah. into, for example, our upward sports programs and scaring the mess out of our kids. Right. right. Uh, I think there's a place for yeah. that. Yeah. But I think it, it it has to involve a lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Just so you, understanding that the, the particularly deadly nature of this addiction, this is worse than alcohol cocaine, yeah. anything we've ever seen before. Yeah. So you're engaging um, where the crisis point is, loving families who are caught in this. Yeah. Um, uh, but you also mentioned, uh, you know, <laughs> scaring your kids uh, yes. straight on this. Um, we do tell them uh, just so, so you're, no. you're talking about uh, an edu- there's an education component upstream from the crisis, right, for the rest Correct. of us who at least, by the grace of God, have maybe not been touched by this crisis yet, but you're trying to educate them upstream. So we talked about coordination, talked about engaging your uh, community, talked about your support from the African-American community community in D.C. Um, uh, for those who may not be familiar with uh, Shepherdstown and West Virginia geography, at this day and age, Shepherdstown is almost quasi-D.C. Uh, suburb. Uh, but there, a train, a commuter yeah. train runs out that direction. We have a um, lot of our people that work in D.C. Right, yeah, yeah. So it's a far poke, but not a, not too far a poke uh, right. to, to come in there. So it's almost some, sometimes a bedroom community in that part of West Virginia. Talk to us a little bit about engaging the broader community that includes non-Christians. You talked a little bit about first responders and uh, yeah. the sheriff's office, but you're not the only faith-based organization. You're not the only non-governmental group uh, who is engaged in this. Uh, yeah. Talk to us about how you, who like us are theological conservatives, we believe certain things about the church, we have, uh, uh, we believe in exclusive truth claims, maybe in the context of the opioid crisis or beyond that, how do you think about engaging uh, with other faith groups and other, other organizations in your community that aren't Christian? Yeah, it's a great question and a, a worthy discussion that we're having right now, yeah. uh, given the multi-faith world that we live in. Right, yeah. Uh, and I've told our people often, you, you, this, is a, this is a world in which historically unprecedented global migration has happened, right. and yeah. uh, they're just mixing bowls of cultures and religions everywhere, and your next-door neighbor as a result is right. as likely to be a Hindu as a Presbyterian. Right. And so in that environment, you, you have to relate to those people um, and as a, I would say, you'd say that as a human being, as a follower of Jesus in that environment, you should relate to yeah. those people right. because we serve a God who became flesh. He yeah. didn't stand on the precipice of heaven and preach a sermon. Right. He incarnated himself right. among people who, who were not like him. Yeah. They, like us, bear the image of God. Exactly. And so our, our goal is to incarnate ourselves and not just to preach, right. but to live among them. Right. And so we have not changed our statement of faith. Uh We still believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God. We still believe Jesus is God. We still believe in blood atonement, bodily resurrection. Uh, There's one way Uh uh, to have your sins forgiven, and that is to have them absorbed in a substitute. Mm -hmm. We have not and will not move on that. But at the same time, there are people that we walk with in this because we share those similar concerns, and, and this really is just the opportunity to deepen the relationship with them. Um, and so this, for me personally, this started when I worked, uh, when I was director of a local association in the Baltimore DC area yeah. years ago. And, and just through some various circumstances, found myself conversing with the Muslim community there, right. seeking to understand them, uh-huh. seeking to have our churches and their people understand right. each other, uh, just as for that, if for no other reason, just to make sure that there's peacemaking there yeah. um, and understanding. And so that's, that's led at least uh, on my part to travels to the Middle East, uh, different places over here. Uh-huh. I've had the opportunity. I mean, it's, it's, I, 
I, it blows my mind sometimes to think about the opportunities that I've had, and I wonder what in the world did I do to 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 be afforded that opportunity? Yeah, right. To stand in a room full of predominantly Muslim people and uh-huh. talk about my faith and yeah. share the gospel openly yeah. with them, because they know the, the relationship had developed to a point. They know that they're not my project. Right. They really are my friends, yeah. and that I'm going to love them if they never become Christian. Right. Uh, likewise, they're going to love me if I never become Muslim. They they're very sincere in their faith and would like for me to leave my yeah. faith and come. Uh-huh. And so we we recognize that there's some spiritual warfare there, but the the, yeah. the struggle is not against flesh and blood. I think somebody inspired said that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so we we develop those friendships just on that basis of mutual respect. And a good imam friend of mine in D.C. I put it this way, and I've been using this analogy for a long time. If it snows 14 inches in my cul-de-sac. And yeah. my neighbor has a shovel. I don't ask if he's a Baptist. Right. <laughs> we just start shoveling snow. Right. Uh, and where this crosses paths with the opioid crisis, uh-huh. uh, addiction is killing Muslims and Jews and Christians and Buddhists and atheists. It's yeah. killing everybody. Yeah. And so our primary partner in this is Addis Israel, a Jewish synagogue right. there in yeah. Northwest D.C. Uh-huh. Uh, Aaron Alexander is the rabbi, one of the rabbis mm-hmm. there, along with Lauren Holtzblatt. They've uh-huh. both become good friends of mine. Yeah. Uh, we obviously have some radical differences, theologically, right. politically, yeah. otherwise. And they still um, talk to you. They do. <laughs> they do. And they have been incredible yeah. in their response to suffering. They mm-hmm. have a yeah. heart for suffering people. Yeah. And so whatever differences I have with them regarding theology— yeah. This is something that we can work together, and, and it's also a great live laboratory. Uh-huh. So we're sitting here in Dallas today. Right. It's funny, you and I live on opposite sides of town. We had to come to Dallas to get right. together. <laughs> um, but we got well, our traffic two, you, in D.C. is just terrible. That's true, yeah. It's, better just, it's easier to get on a plane. That's easier <laughs> than getting on the beltway, right? And so our, our two youth groups just recently toured the U.S. Holocaust Museum together right. mm-hmm. uh, just this past Friday. And after that, got to know each other, got to hang out. Their youth, a yeah. few of them have been to Shepherdstown and we're really stoked about maybe coming back. And uh-huh. so we're talking about a weekend yeah. where we do Antietam Battlefield is not yeah. too far from there. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of different historical monuments around that area, um, bringing them up on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. We've got space at the church where they could comfortably sleep and then uh-huh. uh, and then attend services on Sunday yeah. because we attended Shabbat on uh-huh. on Friday night after the Holocaust Museum. And so our kids then learned, right. this is how you interact with the world. Right. This is what followers of Jesus do. And you don't have to compromise what you believe right. uh, in order to do that. It's interesting, last night uh, during the pastor's conference, I'm listening to J.D. preach and simultaneously texting with an imam friend of mine. Right. Uh-huh. He sent me this list of verses in the Bible that he had strung together and said, look, uh-huh. the, the Salah, the uh-huh. Muslim prayer is supported in your scriptures. Yeah. Uh, and he's quoting from various passages in Exodus 40 and Mark 11 and Luke 22 and Matthew 26. And I just wrote him back and I said, you know what? Those are powerful texts of scripture. We need to get together when I get back and talk about them. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's fascinating to me anytime I meet a Muslim who uh, is versed in in the Judeo-Christian scripture, uh, yeah. because it, it, it present even though we have we might have a different take on some things, uh, it presents a focal point and and a, a conversation right yeah. to engage. Right, I think it's been it's been very helpful. Yeah. So I asked you the question earlier about leading your church into the opioid epidemic. 
that seemed to be an easy lift. People get that because they saw it, right? They were being touched by their community. Have you seen, has the multi-faith engagement in the way that you've just been talking about, has that been as instinctive um, among your ministry experience or did you have to do some theological, doctrinal, foundational work uh, to to lead people into that? That's a good question. I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, For some, it was instinctive, but probably not in the way that I would prefer. Sure. Um, Our church is diverse. Uh It's diverse politically. It's uh-huh. it's a, it's a large, larger than average place, and so yeah. uh, we've got people from obviously from Baptist background because we're affiliated with the SBC. Sure, uh, but people have have come into our fellowship from Protestant, mainline Catholic, I mean, all kinds of different backgrounds. Uh-huh. Um, and so, on the one hand, the ones that are most positively predisposed toward it, right. You have to pull them back from the precipice. Well, you know, I guess we're all the same. No, we're really not. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, that's not what I want you to get out of this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then to those who are further to the right, there's that temptation to be isolated. Right. Uh-huh. Which is, um, if I may be so bold, antichrist. Uh-huh. Uh, and I mean that not in the sense of condemning. I mean right. it quite literally, as the term indicates, it's yeah. anti what Christ would have done. Right. It's anti what he did do. Yeah. Um, and so helping people to take that step is tough. Uh, we've had some community forums at the church. Lord's provided us some great space there to be able to welcome the community in. Uh-huh. Uh, and one of those uh, this past fall, in fact, was a multi-faith forum where I had a couple of imams uh-huh. and myself, yeah. and we interacted. Then we took questions via text message, yeah. and we dealt with those. Uh-huh. Um, and then we ate together. Yeah. Uh, and our church bought. Uh, basically, we had a we had a halal meal catered sure. from Frederick, Maryland. Uh-huh. Um, and everybody loved that. That yeah. was the one thing everybody yeah. unified around was the lamb. The everybody food is loved fantastic. the fantastic. Yeah. yeah, it was Pakistani food, so uh-huh. it's hard to go wrong. It right. Really, it, was, yeah. it was it was phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and so just helping them to get to know each other. Yeah. And see, these are people. These are moms. These are dads. These are, these are people who obviously believe something different, uh-huh. and we don't want to ignore that because, right. again, we believe that we're separated from God, and the only answer to that is a, is a, a bloody substitute. Yeah. Um, and so we, we can't ignore that. Yeah. Um, but we also can't just see people as a project. Right, yeah. And we, we've got to learn how to love each other yeah. regardless of our differences. And, and so I think our people are getting there. Okay. I mean, they're they're kind of used to their their crazy pastor, right? Oh yeah, well, yeah. there he goes again. Another, <laughs> another community yeah. forum. Here we go. Sure. What's who's he bringing in now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that we could get to know each other. Yeah. Given that context of like a multi-faith uh, community gathering, you're bringing in people who have another faith who don't believe the gospel um, that we do. What are your kind of ground rules for setting that kind of thing up? Uh, are there any tips or tricks to how to maybe on the front end prepare your people, uh, maybe in the context? Uh, how, how do you engage that space? And I'm particularly thinking of how do you set that kind of approach and gathering apart from, say, the theologically leftward gathering right. that's kind of more known to be interfaith, where uh, perhaps they might be making the assumption that, well, we really uh, ultimately believe the same thing. They're just, the surface is different. Uh, we're maybe getting together to kind of share where our liturgies uh, right. look alike. Uh, maybe yeah. we're going to have a ecumenical or uh, interfaith prayer service. Right. What you're doing doesn't appear to me to be that. Yeah. So how do you not be that? Yeah, that's sort of like you go into your doctor and saying, for this particular malady, should I take penicillin or should I get this shot of something totally different? And your doctor looking at you going, oh, it's all the same. Don't worry about right. it. Yeah. Right? Just yeah. do it. Uh, that's just ridiculous. And so right. we, we certainly don't want to go there. 
Um, now, that's usually not our danger, though, within a conservative evangelical environment. Right. Uh, it's yeah. not the danger at Covenant. We right. have wonderful, godly people there uh-huh. uh, who are rightly concerned about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And yeah. so, uh, and I'm certainly uh, sure. interested in defending that and making sure that is maintained. And so we just state that at the front. We're right. not changing what we believe. Right. Um, but here's what we have to do. Yeah. Uh, and you set it up. Now, I would say, I think you've made a great point. Uh, we don't do combined worship services, right? Uh, because where, and I know there's a there's a lot of debate going on right now uh, about whether Christians and Muslims, Christians and Jews, do we worship the same God? Where, right. Yeah. Uh, some of that's just epistemological sophistry. That, yeah. That yeah. you know, but but at the end of the day, if you do not worship Jesus Christ, evangelical Christians believe you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. Right. Um, and so in that sense, we're not worshiping the same God, even right. when we're gathered with our Jewish friends yeah. with whom we have that more close historical right. connection. Right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so we don't do worship services together. Yeah. Uh, we'll do community forums together. Yeah. We will certainly allot space for them to pray. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes we get questions like, well, are we enabling false religion? I'm like, yeah. well, they believe in their religion strongly, and they're going to go pray. If we don't give them space here, they're going to go outside in the rain and do it. Right. Let's be good hosts. Let's yeah. be hospitable. Yeah. Um, and by the way, every time I've been to the Middle East, the Muslims right. have given me that same courtesy on a Sunday morning. Right. Uh-huh. Even within their sacred space. Yeah. Um, yeah. We sang, our pastors have sung hymns uh-huh. in Muslim sacred space. And so uh-huh. this is just a, a matter of hospitality. Sure. Uh, this, yeah. is, this is not a problem. Um, and then, so make sure it's it's uh, one of my big li- living influences is Bob Roberts, who's right. just yeah. over here in neighboring Fort Worth. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob puts it great. Uh, he says, "Have one conversation. Don't don't have two different conversations. Don't say one thing to these people and then they say something else about them." Right. Um, and of course, electronic media. Right. Uh, our my sermons are live streamed and then they're broadcast uh-huh. all over the world and, and yeah. we see there are people on continents other than North America that watch me preach every Sunday. Yeah, and that's not because I'm Billy Graham or JD Greer or some yeah, other yeah. famous person. I'm not. Yeah. It's just you've because traveled a bit. I know some people. Right, I know people. <laughs> right, yeah, right, I know. Yeah. I've, got, I've got the relationships and so uh-huh. they listen in, and that's great accountability for a guy like me. Uh huh. To yeah. be careful that I speak the truth, right. but that I do it in such a way that everybody hearing. Yeah. can understand what that means. Yeah. Um, and so we tell our people, just don't compromise your faith. Um, but Jews and Muslims in particular are also people of the book, people who understand objective truth, right? and therefore people who really won't respect you if you do compromise your faith. Right. So you're actually going really good ground to do that with them. Yeah. So have one conversation. And then the second thing Bob taught me is don't serve these people. And this is going to sound weird for a Baptist. Uh-huh. Who wants every? Who wants to see everybody come to know Jesus like I know him, right? Right. But this is wise. Don't serve these people to convert them. Yeah. Serve them because you have been converted. Yeah. You know, demonstrate mm. to them what a follower of Jesus is. Yeah. Is this? You know, when Jesus says that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Yeah. Not by something I necessarily even say to them, but by what they see in right. me. Yeah. Um, and so. I want to serve because I've been converted. Yeah. In the in the hope that they will see that yeah. and that questions will emerge. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we want people to become Christian. Yeah. But never make your friendship conditioned on whether they believe as you do. Right. Yeah. That's a good word, Pastor. So I'm going to ask you uh, a twofold question, two sides of the same coin. 
as your church has engaged uh, Muslims in particular, what's been the most surprising thing in your church of Baptists when they've interacted with a Muslim? What's surprised them most? What surprised them? Yeah. About, um, about Muslims, what the, what yeah. maybe what, what what did they particularly hinge on as a wow I didn't know that or wow that surprised me. The overwhelming diversity of Islam. Yeah, that beyond the five pillars, mm-hmm. there are all these different. Like, wait a minute, right. I thought the women would all come in walking behind the men. Right. I thought uh-huh. that everybody would have a head covering. Uh-huh. I would have. There's one guy in particular. Is a he was a Turkish man, uh-huh. and they were just. Where they're like, his wife doesn't wear head covering. Uh-huh. Well, that's because he runs a salon, <laughs> and he's showing off his product. I guess I don't know. You know. I don't know what that looks like, but but there's different. You know, uh-huh. there there are different cultural expressions. Right. Um, it's like I've told our people. There's a difference between, say, an Eastern Orthodox priest in Armenia, right, and a Pentecostal preacher in Alabama. Uh-huh. Loosely defined, we would call both of those Christian, though. Right. And yeah. that same kind of diversity exists right. within Islam. So yeah. it helps our people to, uh, the most helpful thing with that regard is that it drives them to ask questions right. yeah. of their Muslim neighbor. And that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. Uh, I see what, what you're doing, I think, is part of what's valuable is, is you're creating a safe space right. for people to interact and ask questions. Yeah. Uh, even in the, your, in the context of your format, people are uh, presumably via text message, uh, you're kind of freeing them up. There's kind of a layer of anonymity. Uh, so they're, they're, you're freeing them up to ask uh, awkward questions, right? Yeah, or questions exactly. they might not uh, uh, feel comfortable asking in another context or right. face-to-face, right? So I, And I, I, I would yeah. encourage pastors that want to engage this to figure out some way to do that, and to, but you've got to be an effective translator. Right. So I'll give you one yeah, example yeah. of what I'm talking about. It was really... Same cool. language, but it's yeah. a translation project. Yeah, right? it was a graphic thing, because one of the questions that came through was, and I know I, I have a pretty good idea who asked it, and if I'm right, really good-hearted person that didn't mean anything sure, about Sure, right, right, right. But for the imam, do Muslims really believe that if they kill themselves by blowing themselves up that they go to heaven? Right, yeah. Not the right way to ask the question, but uh-huh. a legitimate question. Sure. Yeah. And so if, if you're a pastor in that environment, you've got to be a translator. You've got uh-huh. to know enough to be able to look at the imam and go, look, there's a word that makes a lot of non-Muslims nervous. Uh-huh. It's the word jihad. Yeah. Can you explain what that means? Right. And yeah. then let him speak for himself and for his faith. Right. And he's not going to be unaware of the cultural nervousness and questions right. about that. He knows maybe, where he lives. Right? He, yeah, he yeah. knows where he lives. He understands the historic context and why people would ask that kind of question. Exactly. Right? And then by that same notion, all of his people that are in the room, right. they're not so shocked at the nature of the right. question. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's helpful. Um, and then from the other side of the coin... Uh, what have you experienced, uh, Muslims and uh, maybe even e- imams in particular, or or lay Muslims? Um, what have they been most surprised about about evangelicals? Wow, yeah, that's a really good question because it depends on the imam. Sure, right, right. right. Or it really you can, does. This this could be a multiple point answer. It could, <laughs> yeah, it could. But I'll, I'll just give you for the, the the sake of brevity, I'll give you the um, the gentleman that I'm I'm in good relationship with now in Hagerstown, is how we view our authority sources. Uh huh. Um, the Quran, as you know, is command after command after edict after command. Uh It's just the way it's written. Right. That it's a piece of literature and that's how it's written. Yeah. And that scripture isn't written that way. 
Right. Scripture is written. Certainly there are commands there that are clear. They should be obeyed. Right. But all of that is within a, within an, the arc of a narrative. Right. Creation, yeah. fall, redemption, restoration. Yeah. Um, and small and, narratives that contribute to that, a variety of different, different literature. Right. Exactly. And so how we interpret the Bible is by necessity, and you don't even have to be Christian to believe this. Any English professor who studies literature would say hermeneutically, right. you would interpret the Bible differently than you would interpret the Quran. Right. Uh, and so there have been a lot of great conversations about that, and specifically yeah. that uh, we don't believe the we don't believe the word became a book. Right. We believe it became flesh. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the Bible, while we certainly believe it, is not the fourth member of the Trinity for us. Right. Yeah. It points us to Jesus, who even said to the religious leaders of his own day, Yeah. You search these scriptures because you think you will find eternal life in them, and it is they that testify of me. Right. And this is why we are freakishly excited when it comes to Jesus. Right. And why we accept what he says about himself in the Gospels. Uh-huh. And I know that's where the rub is with you right. guys, but uh-huh. that's, that's the difference. That's yeah. why we believe because of what the script, who the Scriptures point to. Yeah. Um, and so I think my more recent relationships with the Muslim community, that's been their surprise. Yeah. Is, oh, okay. So, and, and again, any of us is, is subject to, to le- the limitations of our own upbringing and and so yeah. if you've been raised in an environment where this is how you interpret this book and then you encounter another religion that right. does it differently, yeah, um, it's been a good lesson to learn both ways. Yeah, good. Um, I think what also might be surprising uh, to folks is the fact that you can communicate to uh, your Muslim friends what you believe about the gospel and Jesus Christ and, and, and all that's wrapped up in it that you've eloquently explained yeah. um, and that they're not offended by that. They no. recognize... Right uh, and understand that our 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 claims of truth um, and our understanding of authority are different. Yeah. Except they still come to the table, right? They do, and that's yeah. maybe and surprising. How, well, we're, how we're, you do that matters. Right. How, uh, how I will we say do that. Matters. It's yeah. like if I were trying to get you to join my family, the first thing I'd say right. would not be your mama's ugly. Right. Right. And so let's <laughs> let's be careful. Uh, right. Don't insult their prophet. I and I and you don't have to insult him. I don't believe Muhammad was a prophet. I don't believe the Quran is the word of God. I can say right. that to a Muslim. Yeah. They're not offended by that. I don't have to call him all kind of names and talk about things he supposedly did. I, okay. Let's let's talk about what really matters. Who yeah. is Jesus? Yeah. And let's go there. Good. Well, I appreciate you uh, sharing this insight. Um, it's uh, something I think is, again, uh, part of what um, maybe we as theological conservatives don't. That's a muscle we haven't maybe uh, developed as well as maybe some other muscles. And uh, I think uh, we sometimes assume that any kind of uh, uh, multi-faith interaction necessarily has to look like that other kind of uh, faith interaction that, that we can't go there. Um, but just because we can't and shouldn't go into that uh, you know, uh, theological mishmash, right? Right. Um, doesn't mean we ought not to still engage in our own way, right? And so it encourages me to to see a pastor who has a framework for that, who who's developed it, um, and uh, and and has engaged not only engaged but led your church yeah. uh, to see uh, the value and and the consistency of the gospel in Thanks. that in that work. Well, and I have to say, I have learned it. I've had some great mentors here, but I did not primarily learn this on this continent. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, we have a resolution pending tomorrow on the plight of Arab Christians. Right. Uh-huh. Those are the brothers and sisters we ought to learn from because the things we're talking about right now, right. those people have been doing it They've for thousands of years. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, let me, on that question, I, I, yeah. I, 
I wonder if there's there's a lesson clearly um, to be learned. I grew up in a church, evangelical church. It wasn't um, it was Baptistic. It wasn't Southern Baptist at the time, but it was very missions oriented, very international missions oriented. Right. And as I reflect back on growing up in that context, it was predominantly white. It's uh, West Virginia, you know, not um, it's a you know, university town, so it's you know quasi semi metropolitan for by right. West Virginia standards. So there is a diversity, but our church, you know, was you know, not unlike a lot of others when we talked about mission. It was an assumption that when we sent a missionary out, they would first learn the culture in which they were going to spread the gospel. They'd learn the culture, they'd learn right. the language, they'd uh, wear the garb, they'd learn the diet, right? Um, does it feel like to you that in our American context, maybe we don't appreciate uh, the diversity of culture in which our, uh, we live in our own country? And so we don't we don't make that effort to engage other cultures because we think the culture around us is all the same. It's more like us than, say, if, if I were to go, uh, say, to Africa or the Middle East, there's an assumption that I'm the odd guy out, right? right. I've, I've got some education to do on my own part to equip myself and be- familiarize myself with the culture. Right. But maybe here in the States, we just kind of assume it's, it's all our culture. Yeah. And so we don't have to adapt. Does that, does that question make sense? It does make sense. And I think there's an unconscious presumption right? Yeah, yeah. probably here in North America. Yeah. For that matter, there's some of that that goes on overseas. Uh-huh. But, but in North okay. America in particular, I mean, my PhD is in missiology. And, it, uh-huh. and so it pains me to say that oftentimes the greatest barrier to mission is your own missiology. Uh-huh. Um, because my, my area of focus was church planting in North America. Uh-huh. And we saw so many of these guys that would go into these major cities with their plans and their textbooks uh-huh. Uh-huh. And six months in, they're still developing the plan, but they don't know where Walmart is. Right. They don't know where the, their wife doesn't know where the post office is. They uh-huh. don't, they've not met people and understood where they are. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that naturally translates yeah. to the immigrant communities that are now living amongst us. We're uh-huh. sitting in the middle of a metroplex now that's 40% foreign-born. Right, yeah. Um, if we don't know that, right. we, we are going to stumble over both feet yeah. all the way. So yeah. I think that's incredibly important is to be a learner. Yeah. It seems to be a dichotomy. It's, you know, I, I had to kind of go through is that we instinctively know that about foreign missions, yeah. right? Uh, but then there are those of us who we don't we don't make that assumption in our own community because yeah. we don't think of it as diverse as another culture. We don't think about people living culturally different than us. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes, absolutely. And and when you can learn to do that, you open doors. Alan Hirsch said probably three years ago, and I think this is probably still right, that 80% of churches in North America are after the same 20% of the population that's already reached. Right. Uh, yeah. Which means our primary target is other churches' members. Yeah. Which is just... Yeah, you know, unethical doesn't even begin to describe that. Yeah. We should be going after and seeking and saving the lost. But the problem is, so many of those are immigrants. Their culture right. is different. They uh-huh. look different. They uh-huh. act different. But a smile and a welcome and a, a willingness to even be a fool right. yeah. um, can go so far with people like that when you welcome them in. And when you think about it, this is exactly this is exactly our faith. Yeah as we were kind of wandering around outside the gates of the kingdom of this holy God that, that we had offended. 
And through Christ, we yeah. see a smile. Yeah. And we see a welcoming of those of us who were aliens and strangers who are now part of the family. Yeah. Um, we, we can so pull this off right. if we would just adopt that same posture. Yeah. I like what you said about uh, willingness to, to be a fool. I, I think there's a lot, a lot yeah. there in humility um, because we, we don't want to create, uh, even if we're well-intended, we don't want to uh, commit the cultural snafu or the faux pas uh, and, and insult someone. Yeah. And, um, you but if, if, and you will. And you will. done it. And you will. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but if and they just laugh. Right. Uh, if you're willing to play the fool... Uh, uh, to use that word, or but be humble in your approach and be aware that that's possible. It's likely yeah. you're gonna do it, but when you do it, it's not the end of the story, right? You a, a simple apology, going back to your uh, hospitality yeah. uh, subject matter, um, that that goes a long way, right? And it so, uh, and and even that humility communicates something uh, about when you when you find yourself in error, uh, maybe an embarrassing error, right? Uh, right. Your 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 ability to kind of come back. Into conversation from that uh, is something exemplaring the gospel to uh, right. in some respects. Well, Pastor, thank you for taking the time to visit uh, with us on Capital Conversations. Thank you for uh, your encouragement and work for the sake of the gospel. Thank you for helping uh, the ERLC from time to time kind of get our heads around some of these crises in the local context and what you contribute to to our knowledge base. And uh, thank you for uh, being willing to take that leading edge, uh, even though we you know you're all crazy. Uh, we are not. I am not. <laughs> But you guys enable my nuts. That's right. right? That's true. You really do. And that, you, we got. I got to say this. I because a lot of people they see they see Russ. Sure. Russ and I were in seminary together. They see him up there. He's a powerful preacher, uh, staking out positions, uh-huh. doing the, the kind of the public persona stuff you guys do in the district. Yeah. But a lot of people I don't I think don't realize what the ERLC is doing underneath the surface, mm-hmm. and a lot of the connections even that we have made right. for this opioid thing were yeah. brokered. Yeah. through your office. Yeah. Um, so you guys do some incredible work that actually helps facilitate this. And as a pastor who is part of a church who gives to the cooperative program that supports your entity, I am yeah. incre- I'm incredibly grateful for that. Well, those, those are kind words. Uh, we're, we're honored to do it. Anytime we can uh, serve a local church or, and a pastor like yourself, I, naturally we're happy to engage, and I hope we're, we'll f- we're fulfilling our, our mission role um, in, in doing that. So yeah. uh, appreciate that. Um, there are a lot of great people hard at work on that issue um, in and out of government, local and national, uh, so uh, people can uh, pray for that crisis in the coming days and, and years. Well, Pastor Joel, thank you for joining us on Capital Conversations. Thank you for your work in the local church. And uh, Godspeed during the rest of your time in, in Dallas. And uh, where can, if people want to hear your sermons, where might they find that? They can find it at covenantexperience.com. They can watch us live there. We also have a YouTube channel. Yep. We're on Facebook Live. Yep. Um, the podcasts are there as well, Covenant Church Sermons. And if they want to contact us, uh, the phone number is 304-876-2212. Yeah. Uh, if they want to reach out, uh, they can also contact us electronically through the website. Sure. If they yeah. want to learn a little bit more about what we're doing, we'd be glad to help and see this replicated. Great. Appreciate your willingness to do that. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. This has been Capital Conversations, a podcast of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Special thanks to Gary Lancaster for editing the audio and to Marie Delf for posting show notes for this episode. Those are available at erlc.com. There you'll find additional podcasts and other resources to equip you and your church.